Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend of two and a half years that I'm meeting for the first time who's here in my home, Ginger Price. Welcome to the podcast, Ginger. Thank you, Richard. Ginger and I have been exchanging messages for a long time, and um, she had a wonderful post that will be part of this podcast that will be helpful. But as far as an introduction, um, Ginger is a married mother of four, uh, married for 14 years, has spent time living in Alaska and Utah, grew up in Cache Valley, Utah, served a mission to Detroit, English speaking. And then she'll talk about um, a journey to eventually resign from the church. So you're going to hear a podcast from somebody that has resigned from the church. That happened in um, 2018, the fall. So that's about three years ago. She'll talk about sort of what led her to that decision and why she did that. Um, and she's still, this isn't a story where I'm going to say now she's been rebaptized. It's not that kind of a podcast, but it is a podcast where um, recently she had a wonderful experience with her stake president, where her stake president invited um, Ginger to share her story with the stake presidency and, and the eight bishops in the stake. And they just spent time listening to Ginger. And Ginger's going to talk about how healing and helpful that experience was. And that is an experience I think all local leaders can do is to take the time to listen to people and to help us see each other as the same human family. Um, so that's kind of, you know, our hope is that this is like the podcast where people share honest stories to help us just see each other as the same human family and um, just to honor, to try to find unity in diversity or heal our divide. And often listening to people that have different life experiences then us helps heal our divide. So we said a prayer before we started. We just hope this podcast is helpful for you. If you're a local leader or a parent or somebody that has stewardship responsibility for people that have left the church or in a faith crisis, I think our hope is this will help you better understand the road they're walking. We sometimes say pretty unkind things about people that step away from the church. And I've met enough people that have left the church that I have seen good in them and honored their journeys and still see them as Heavenly Father's children, my spirit brothers and sisters. Is that okay for an introduction? Yes, thank you. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you. You could start with your family upbringing, maybe, and your mission, and just some of the trauma that happened after your mission. Yes, thank you, Richard. I feel it's a privilege and an honor to be here. Thank you for this invite. Um, so I grew up in a small dairy uh, farming community called Cornish, Utah. It's on the Idaho border, and I loved my upbringing. Um, I had an incredible, simple, um, very innocent upbringing with wonderful family members. Um, my um, upbringing included all of the aunts and the uncles um, going up to grandma's house and every Sunday after church. And it was just this, it was a utopia growing up. Um, I have an identical twin sister, and uh, she was always the good twin, and I was kind of <laughs> always the one that lived on the edge. And when we were 21, we both wanted to get a vehicle and asked our father to co-sign 
And he said, well, before I do it, I want you to both pray about whether or not you need to go on a mission. And I thought for sure she was the one that was going to get the answer to go on the mission. And I was the one that was going to get to stay home and get my new car. And we were both shocked. Um, We used to tease each other that we thought maybe God got us mixed up because I got the answer to go and she got the answer to stay. And I fought it really hard. I did not want to go on a mission. Um, Three months into my mission, I, I hated being there. Uh, I just felt out of place and that I didn't belong. But I, to this day, I loved my mission. And I keep track with, uh, keep in touch with a lot of families from there and a lot of mission companions. Um, my, I didn't really start experiencing trauma um, within the church until I started dating. And my trauma really was, uh, it was a, I got home from my mission in about, when was it? 2000. But I really didn't start dating serious until about 2002. And my dating experiences were, it involved, I felt like, I felt like I had this like magic marker written on my forehead or a permanent marker that said, please tell me about your porn addiction. And this was before porn was ever really even talked about. Um, and they were some pretty, pretty, um, I don't even know the word, um, very disappointing and unset- unsettling dating experiences. I was very uneducated about pornography use. Um, I had leaders telling me that men who are addicted to porn end up gay. Um, They end up cheating on you. And I became very terrified of marriage. Um, Because of my dating experiences within men in the church, I eventually found myself dating non-members. And in fact, the first love of my life was an atheist. Um, And I really wanted something long-term with him. But at the time, I thought he's atheist. How could he have morals if he's atheist? And boy, was I wrong. Um, I don't think that defines whether or not you have good morals. Anyway. Um, I ended up finding myself in a very abusive relationship. Um, I met this this gentleman um, while living in Salt Lake, and he uh, prides himself on being or considers himself a pretty influential person in two different circles that he runs in. And um, the abuse was, physical it was sexual um he raped me wow um he threatened to kill me more times than i could count um i i did meet with the lds therapist for three times after this relationship and she couldn't classify the abuse as domestic abuse because we didn't live together but she said in the 30 years of her practicing, 
um, she, mine was one of the worst cases of domestic abuse she'd ever heard of. Um, mm. it was, pr- it was pretty terrifying. Um, I didn't think I was going to get out of that relationship alive. And as a result, I, I have a lot of, I've had a lot of mental health issues because of that. Um, so growing up in the church as a woman, when you hear these messages, I mean, I was 26, 27 years old. I was still struggling to get married. Again, I was terrified of marriage. And you're sitting in church and you hear these messages that um, it would be better to never get married if you don't marry a worthy priesthood holder in the temple. And I took that to heart. And so I had a lot of cognitive dissonance going on at the time. Like, okay, I want to marry a man in the temple, but it seems like I keep attracting these men with porn addictions. Um, And that, yeah, I'm here with this non-member guy and there's a lot of abuse. Like, I I was such a wreck when it came to dating and my pursuit of finding a worthy priesthood holder. Um, Eventually, I got out of this relationship. As I was getting out, I met my now current husband. And we, um, I was 29 and a half when I got married, and he was uh, 31, 32. And I, outside of this one horrible, abusive relationship, um, I felt like I was like living the perfect Mormon woman life. Um, I never had sex never drank coffee, paid my tithing, served a mission. Um, And when my husband and I got married, um, we, he had been married previous and he had been divorced for about three years. And um, so he was still sealed to his first wife. And so he had to get clearance to be sealed to me. Our Bishop, stake president, both found us worthy to get to get married in the temple, and it was the hall around the holidays, and so they said plan for at least three to four months out to get an answer back, but we shouldn't see any problem. Um, you go into the temple and get married, so we had picked a date. This was like in September. We picked a date in December, and we ended up getting announcements made and sent all the announcements out, and we were denied a temple marriage five days before our wedding date with no reason. And so this, a lot of times, you hear this term, um, I, you put it on my shelf, right? Like, when something traumatic happens, you put it on your shelf. And I had, I had put, this was so traumatic to me. I thought, I've kept myself worthy for almost, 30 years. And I got denied temple marriage for no reason. For many years, um, I thought God was mad at me. Um, the night before 
my abuser asked me out on a date. I had woken up during the middle of the night and had a very, very strong impression that I needed to run from him. And it confused me. Um, I didn't understand why. And I couldn't go back to sleep. And I got up, got ready for work. And as I drove to work, the feeling resided, resided. And that's where I knew him was from work. And that day, he asked me out on a date. And I ignored that prompting. And so for many years, I just, I thought God was just really disappointed in me. I mean, I know now God doesn't work that way. But anyway, um, that was one of the biggest shelf items that was on my shelf. Um, I, I, we got married civilly and I got pregnant right away. Um, and for that first year of marriage, my anxiety was through the roof. I just, with this state of mind that I was in, thinking God was mad at me, um, I thought, my husband, my baby, they're going to be taken from me. And I'm not going to get a chance to be sealed to them. And so that created a lot of, um, some depression and major anxiety. And anyway, we ended up getting sealed in the temple. And because of my open and honesty with my girlfriends um, about the, these dating experiences with men and, their, and pornography, um, I essentially became this untrained therapist <laughs> for like the next 15 years. <laughs> Not only would girlfriends come to me but they'd refer some of their friends or they would refer a sister or, or somebody. And I was, for 15 years, I was hearing story after story after story of porn. And it got to a point, it was, it was January of 2018. And I told my husband, I said, if two more women come to me, I need to go see a bishop and be referred out to a counselor because this is affecting my marriage. It's affecting the way I view you. It started affecting the way I viewed God. And um, I'll never forget, um, two, two more girls came to me. And um, th- there were two um, specific events where um, I was sitting in church one Sunday, and the Sunday school lesson was on um, Abraham and Isaac. And for some reason, that lesson just got to me. And because of the year of abuse, Mm -hmm. and then the manipulation, and the way I was viewing men, I just thought wait, this is a manipulative story. Why would a loving God ask his son Abraham to murder his son just to prove his love to him? You know, I applied that in the context of abuse, and I just thought, for the first time, I thought this sounds like an abusive God. And a month later, I was sitting in Relief Society 
and I was viewing, it was the closing song, and it's that picture we all know of Jesus at the tomb and Mary at his feet. And I sat there and I just started sobbing. And I thought, I don't like this position that she's in. And then I just, I went home that day and I thought, what's wrong with me? I'm viewing Jesus this way. So I made an appointment with my bishop. And um, this would have been spring, April of 2000, March or April of 2018. <clears throat> and that's, this is when the MTC mission president story broke. And that just completely broke me um, at that point. I had gone to several bishops over the years and, and had this conversation with them. Like, I'm, I'm struggling. I am to this point where I view at least 95% of the men in this church as porn addicts. And many of them agreed with me. All three of them agreed with me that, yes, porn is rampant in the church. And so uh, when this MTC mission president story broke, I just thought, how could this happen this high up? And that pushed me to want to research church history. Um, at that point, I made a a post on social media just kind of expressing my distress and feeling like my faith was really falling. And a friend private messaged me and asked me if I'd heard of a certain document within the church, not within the church, I apologize. Um, It's not within the church, but a certain document that's about 80 pages. And I hadn't heard of this document. And In two days, I went from a hundred percent believer in the truth claims to zero. Um, I words can't even describe how terrifying that is. You're it just. It, if you think of the, do you remember the movie Never Ending Story? Mm-hmm. Never Ending Story. It's an old 80s movie. I probably do. I just don't recognize the title. Everything just uh, uh, darkness, complete darkness, rubble. Um, I felt like my entire spirit was just trapped underneath all these boulders. There was nothing but darkness. <laughs> this document, um, I set out to prove it wrong, and I told myself I'm going to read anything and everything to try and prove it wrong. And <clears throat> within six months, um, There was a man by the name of um, Sam Young that was excommunicated in the fall of 2018. And that pushed me to resign from the church um, because of my experiences with with a lot of Mormon men. 
I was crushed that they would do that to him. I know he was loud in his approach. Um, but the fact that they excommunicated someone who was trying to protect children just, I, it's, it's what pushed me to just cut myself off completely. My husband, um, he said to me, he said, don't do this out of emotion. And I didn't care. Um, I did it. And I did it through um, a lawyer um, who makes it very quick. And so um, a year went by and it took a long time that Samyang getting excommunicated, that there was a rise in re resignations when that happened. Um, so a year went by and I tried really hard to keep my belief in God and in Jesus. Um, I went to Africa a year after. Um, I was actually in Africa. I'd always dreamed about going to Africa and dreamed about serving in a special needs orphanage, doing a safari, that kind of stuff. And so I went to Africa. And when I was in Africa, um, and I saw the poverty, I was working in this special needs orphanage. Um, there were about 40 kids with cerebral palsy. And I was feeding a kid. Um, and I stepped away for a moment to help another child. And um, the shriek. His shriek of terror that I was taking his food from him completely broke any belief I had in a loving God. I couldn't comprehend how a loving God could let someone so vulnerable with no family, with not an ability to walk or talk, just be in so much pain because he, he thought his food was going to be taken away. And I ended up coming home from Africa um, still just grappling. I mean, the pain and the trauma of a faith crisis, you don't just lose your belief in the truth claims. You lose your identity. You lose your culture. Like, you lose your, your tribe. Um, you lose everything. And it creates this sense of loneliness. Um, and it's just, there's a lot of, of hurting people who leave and become suicidal. My husband left with me. My children left with me. And so I didn't have to stay angry long. I definitely experienced anger. But the anger didn't last long because I didn't have major trauma growing up. I didn't lose a spouse because of my faith crisis. My children didn't disown me. Um, there was tension and awkwardness with family and friends, but no one outright shunned me.
And so for me, I didn't want to stay angry for long. I needed to experience the anger, but I didn't want to stay in that space for very long. So um, about a year after Africa, um, I came, I traveled from Alaska down to Utah. Um, A childhood friend of mine passed away unexpectedly in her sleep. And it was the first time that I was around um, everybody I grew up with and all of my family since leaving the church. And they all knew about it. I was public about my loss of belief. And the pain of being there and feeling like such an outsider was more than I could take. I felt like I was standing outside of this glass house looking in and I didn't belong there. Um, I was struggling living in Alaska um, with with no family support. The um, the dark winters, the coldness. I I struggled with depression up there in the winters, and the the idea of not belonging with my own family and friends here, but struggling there was the first time I became suicidal. Um, And I spent about six months um, really struggling with wanting to live. Um, I finally was able to pull myself out of that when um, just some random day, this overwhelming just feeling came over me that in this message said, Ginger, stop defining your worth by your level of faith. And that's what pulled me out. And so I was doing good for a while and um, got a year went by um, and I was struggling again in Alaska. I was experiencing a lot, a lot of anxiety, depression. I didn't, I knew a lot of it was coming from the church or from my faith crisis. But there was some underlying issues going on that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And last year, um, winter hit and I started feeling suicidal again. And I told my husband, I need a break from Alaska. I need to, I need to go home for a little bit. And so we worked out this plan for him to stay and me move home with the children for a while and to get a break. And this is where, um, the story starts with meeting the stake president. That's probably a good place just to pause. Um, there's a lot of listeners that just want to jump through their wherever they're listening and give you a big hug. What you've shared took a lot of courage. You're a strong, remarkable, articulate. I'm going to use the word faithful if that's not triggering because I consider you incredibly faithful. And you have done the very best you can with the circumstances you've been dealt with. And um, as we listen to stories of people that have gone through faith crisis and hear them first person, our heart just kind of 
leaps out of our chest and we just want to give you a hug because we sort of understand um, sort of a lot of the dots that logically led you to where you are. You didn't say one day, okay, I'm going to have a faith crisis because this will make me happy. Um, this is just what became in your life because of the events around you. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't because of some of the things we say. It was just, it just happened because of all of these events that came into your life. Many that were outside of your control. And I hope listeners picked up just your incredibly good heart in this. Here you are in Africa at a, um, but I forgot the name of the disease that little boy had. Cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy. So I'm just thinking of you and just your heart and recognizing the inequity of mortality. Yes. And the vulnerability of this little boy. And it's your good heart that just makes us unreconcilable. Um, and um, your desire to understand just the history of our church and make sense of that. So I just give grace to anybody like you or anybody out there that's doing the best they can, that has a really good heart, that's navigating. Here you are helping all these people that are know you're a safe person to talk to about pornography or a spouse that's working through pornography. And, and the emotional drain on you is you're trying to help other people as well as navigating your own road. And then I think of... um. I'm thinking of that funeral you went to and the pain of being an outsider and not belonging. And that's one of the most, Brene Brown has a quote that I sometimes mention, not belonging is the most terrifying feeling. It's different than being alone. It's locked out of the possibility of human connection like you're and powerless to change the situation. And it can lead to feelings of suicide. Yes. And you've experienced that and know that road really well. And I'm glad you're alive. And a lot of people are glad you're alive. But um, I just, you know, and I, I love this line, don't define worth by your level of faith. And I can even see how it's hard to reconcile since men have let you down. God is a man. Um, yes. Our Heavenly Father is anyway, and and so some people have trust issues with deity. Yes. I talked to a woman who um, was, you know, a BYU law student. She was raped. She prayed for safety before she went to this situation and wondered why Heavenly Father didn't protect her. And Heavenly Mother kind of got her through that period of time um, because she lost trust in men. And I thought, well, that seems pretty logical to me. And um, so I just recognize that as, you know, that would, you wonder where God is and where your God is in Africa. And so what I guess I'm trying to say is that I just think you, I, I don't look at this as a chapter of your life where God is disappointed in you. Maybe God would even say, Ginger, I knew you so well. And I knew your good heart and how you care about people, and you've always wanted to do what's right, and you courageously serve this mission in Detroit. There's a lot of, and I sense you're very connected, Elder Nider, Corey Nider, mm -hmm. that we both know as somebody that um, I know and you know is connected with you, and I sense you love people. You're connected with people there. So 
maybe Heavenly Father would say, Ginger, I always kind of knew this is where you'd be at this point in your life. Knowing you so well and knowing the challenges of mortality and the human limitations and your good heart and some of that just being unreconcilable. And so I, I'm not trying to be prescriptive here or really know what Heavenly Father would say, but I think he might say, Ginger, you haven't disappointed me. I'm not surprised. Um, this is kind of where I thought you'd be in your mortal journey, and you're going to be okay. And he may talk about sort of deconstruction and reconstruction and sort of deconstructing kind of um, where you were and reconstructing to where you're going to be going down in the future. And I and when people reconstruct, I just sort of let them do that on their own. I don't try to get prescriptive and say, this is how your road's going to be. And um, I just sort of trust you to continue to make your way forward. You've worked through incredible trauma that I don't understand. So I would be, it would be inappropriate of me to have any idea of the trauma you've worked through and you've experienced and you're still experiencing and how those are some of the dots that have connected you to where you are. And trauma is real. It's not a spiritual weakness. <laughs> it's healed through therapy. I think it's great you're going through therapy. It's a sign of your courage, your strength, your willingness to hit this head on and continue to be the best ginger price you can be. I think you've got this incredibly compassionate heart that is one of your Christ-like attributes um, that continues to bless a lot of people. So I'd love you to talk about, that's just the way I feel about you and your story. And um, Thank you. And. Uh, I think it's okay for us to recognize where we've let people down so that we can do better. And I think that leads into your chance meeting with, um, I'll let you introduce your stake president and sure. this experience. Yeah. So a year ago, um, I was sitting on my couch in Alaska and I was surfing social media and it was during Christmas, the light, the world campaign. And of course, 90 percent of the people in my life are still active believing members of the church and so I see the hashtag light the world's comments well this random comment showed up in my newsfeed, and it was this gentleman that said I am so grateful sorry I'm so emotional I'm so grateful for the people in my life who've left the church and he proceeded to list off all of the things that he has learned from the people in his life who's left the church. And for me, given the state that I was in, like mental state, I was like, wow, who says these kinds of things and is genuine about it? And so I commented and thanked him and said, this is one of the best light the world posts I've ever seen. So he uh, private messaged me and we started talking and, and he genuinely wanted to know what it was like to go through a faith crisis. So this had been, what, two and a half years? First guy, first active believing member of the church, priesthood leader, who asked me, what is it like? And he just let me just share anything. Um, he wanted to know what exactly with church history that I had problems with. I, he wasn't afraid of anything. 
And I get there was this relationship. I don't know you. You don't know me. But he just let me talk. And so we continued this friendship, check in with each other over the next several months. Um, By the spring of last year, we had decided to sell everything and I move home for a little while with the kids. So I messaged him. I had no idea where he lived at this point. I just said, hey, we're going to leave Alaska. And, and at that point, I knew he lived in Logan. And um, at that point, he told me that he was the Utah State University Institute director. His name is um, Ed Hegeman, President Hegeman. And so we continue talking. And then when I find out exactly where we're going to move to, I told him which town in Cache Valley we were going to move to. And he said, I know you're technically not on the records of the church, but I'm your future state president. <laughs> That's, that is just unbelievable. So here I am in Alaska. Here he is in, in Logan. And um, so me and my girls moved down in June. Um, him and the bishop that I would have supposed to, the word I would have been in, show up. They um, come and talk to me. And he made it from very clear from the start. This isn't about getting you back to church. This isn't about rebaptizing you. I just want you to know you're loved and we care about you. And I want to know how we can help. There was no ulterior motive at all. And so we continued to message for a little bit. And he said, I think it's time you come up to the Institute and we talk. (laughs) And so even though we had this like Facebook messenger, like friendship going back and forth and I could open up to him. Now I was really getting invited to be in person with somebody. So I went up to the Institute and we sat there for three hours and he just wanted to hear everything. And he shared things and I shared things and it was the most ministering, the greatest three hours of ministering that I've experienced within the church. And it's taken 43 years to get there as a resigned woman of the church. And so we continue on and um, keep a friendship. I go meet his wife. I meet his kids. And and we become wonderful friends. Um, So during this time, this happened in June. By um, September, mid-October, mid-October, I had some I had um I I went to do some alternate forms of therapy and during this all of this past trauma came back. Oh, I I need to reach I need to go back. When I left the institute that day was as he was walking me out. He said, "Ginger, is there anything you miss about the church?" And I said, well, let me think about that. I've never been asked that, so I'm not quite sure how to answer that. So this was it. So fast forward to October. Um, I had all of this buried trauma had come to the surface, and I, I went to a domestic abusive 
shelter in Logan. And I've started some intense therapy for never dealing with what happened. As a result um, of this therapy, I've been forced to admit to myself and to my husband, I've told family and friends, um, I have an eating disorder. Um, I've been anorexic ever since, so 15 years anorexic. And 13 years I've been addicted to laxatives. Thanks for your courage just to share that. And um, I was feeling suicidal again. Um, feeling all of these emotions from the last 15 years and what trauma does to the body, into the brain, into the spirit. I was just feeling so heavy. And uh, Logan got this really big unexpected snowstorm. And um, because of this unexpected snowstorm, the trees hadn't shed their leaves. And so there were just tr broken trees everywhere with branches everywhere. And I dropped my kids off to school and I went and drove around and I was just mesmerized by how a tree could break under pressure. And the next day, a few days as I was watching the workers clean up the trees, it hit me what I missed about the church. Um, it has been very difficult to work through trauma without a belief in Jesus. Or God. I thought though the darkness from my friend's funeral was was pretty dark. Um, but the month of October was really dark. And I just thought, how do I do this? How do I work through trauma when I don't have anyone to throw my burdens at? And so I messaged. President Heckman, and I said, I know what I miss. I, I wish I had a belief in the Savior. And at that point, um, he, he um, reached out to me, and he said, state conference is coming up, and I want to invite you to talk at state conference about your struggles of a faith crisis and what, what you've said, like, how can we do better? And so I was going to speak at state conference. I told him I would. Um, it shocked me. I mean, I've never heard of a resigned member being asked to speak at state conference. And over the next few days, we both had determined it probably wasn't the best place to share the story. And this is when he said, I think I know the place. Um, I think you need to come before my counselors and my eight bishops next week. Tell them your story, and then we will provide a Q&A after for them to ask any questions. And you can provide your answers. And be, he and he gave me permission to be as open and honest and vulnerable as I wanted to be. 
And for the first time in 25 years, my perception of Mormon men had changed. So uh, you're sharing things that I've never heard anybody talk about. I've never heard of a stake president inviting a resigned member to speak at church with the idea that when we know better, we do better. And who better to help us know better than someone who has resigned? I think he knew your heart. You're not asking other people to resign with you. Um, You're just wanting to share your experience and so that we can all do better. And I love the way you both kind of worked through that and decided maybe the best thing to do is um, have a council where all eight bishops and my counselors for one and a half hours to two hours just listen to your story. I've never heard that before. But what, but there's, but to me, it's an application of ministering. It's an application of what we do and as part of our responsibility as, as leaders to minister to everybody in our fold. And one of the best ways to do that is to hear everybody's story and not make assumptions about people until we hear their story. And just talk more. So this is an evening meeting, I assume. Yes. And you've just kind of said you've never felt heard like this before. So just talk to us more about that meeting in case others want to duplicate that either in a one-on-one ministering appointment or in a setting like your stake president did. So I showed up. It was it was late, 8 o'clock at night. Um, and. President Hegeman um, did like a little, he opened with prayer. He, sh- he shared a video, brought in the spirit with music. And, um, and then he kind of gave me an introduction. And then he, I basically um, read, to him, read to them what I had written for a state conference. And then after that, um, he'd introduced me to everyone. And they were so kind and warm and welcoming and it was it was so abnormal to me like there was a vetted interest there that was all about how can we do better how can we learn from you and the question I mean I remember one bishop even prefaced his question with I don't want to sound offensive I don't want to come across offensive, but I don't know how to ask this question any other way. I think in the future, if other leaders were to do this, there does need to be mutual respect. I'm the type of person I would never want to destroy anybody else's faith. Um, there are people out there. I'm not judging them for that. I, I think their experiences led them to want to react that way to their own faith crisis. But there does have to be some mutual respect where you don't go in determined to tear down their testimonies. You're there to share your experiences and answer questions. I love that. And I'm going to read a little bit because you posted this on Facebook. Um, 
And I'm not going to read the whole post, although we probably will link to it because I think it's a public post. And so you can read the whole post. Um, To the 12 Mormon men in that room who cared that I resigned, 43-year-old woman had to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for asking questions. Thank you for crying with me. Thank you for sitting me with me in my pain. Thank you for giving me the space to share my story. You're a good writer, Ginger. Thank you. This hardened heart towards men in the church has thawed a little because of you. I want to strive a little more to see the good that Mormon has to offer. Because of you, I no longer want to privately seek out the negative in Mormonism to validate my reasons for leaving and staying away. Because of you, I want to choose the sweet instead of the bitter. Most of all, I want to thank you, my friend, Ed. You were the first believing priesthood leader who was willing to ask me the hard questions, who was willing to sit and listen to more than just a sugar-coated story of how one loses their faith. You were the first leader who felt I didn't have, who didn't, I felt didn't have an ulterior motive simply to get me back to the church. Well, listeners, now that we've... um introduce Ginger Stick President Ed Hegman and um, Ginger's experience um, with President Hegman, the stake presidency, and the bishops, and Ginger's posting of this on social media. I wanted to read one of the comments on her post. There were hundreds of comments. Um, One was from my friend Nate, and this is a public post, or I'm sharing something that's public here. Nate writes, this has not been my experience at all with LDS leadership. In fact, I just met with my local bishop. It was one of the more heartbreaking experiences to add to my list of closed-door interviews. The experience you had was what I hoped for. Even though I didn't have that outcome, I'm glad that you had such an opportunity to express yourself and feel like you were listened to. It takes courage to be so real and authentic to be so open and vulnerable, especially when we aren't certain of the outcome. Sounds like a very healing experience, and I'm happy for you. Listeners, Nate's a good man that I've interacted with, and I honor his difficult experiences, but I love the grace he extends to you, Ginger, that you had a good experience, and he's genuinely happy for you. But then I noticed some replies to Nate's comment. And one reply was from Ed Hegman, your stake president. He's not Nate's stake president. They don't live in the same area. But this is what President Hegman said. Hey, Nate, I recognize I'm not your priesthood leader and that we've never met. But if you ever want to chat, I generally would like to hear about your journey. So listeners, I don't know what became of that. I don't know if Ed and Nate met. But I just thought of the grace of both men. Um, wanting to connect and wanting to, um, Ed, to be willing to listen to Nate's story, even though Nate doesn't live in his area, and just being present for him and Nate being open and vulnerable about difficult experiences he had and and others in Nate's life as well as President Hegman not willing to shy away from that. So to me, that's how we help heal our divide, and that's just a small example of how to do that. Grateful for Nate and Ed, and grateful, Ginger, you sharing this so uh, this connection could be made possible. So I'm just 
when I read that, um, I just thought, what a wonder, wonderful example of living the gospel of Jesus Christ, you included. And I don't know where you are exactly with your belief in God and Jesus, but to me, you've always lived the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've always followed Jesus. Jesus took you to Africa. Jesus took you to Detroit. Jesus took you to um, all the people you've been helping. And I, and Jesus kept you sort of, I think, with this grace to be willing to, to see this post on social media from Ed and see his kindness towards people that had left the church. And to me, he's just practicing the teachings of Jesus. Um, he's following his baptism covenants. He's not gone rogue to do this. He's just doing what I think Christ would want him to do is just to love all of his Heavenly Father's children. And the the safety that that communicated in that social media post that you knew he was safe. Yes. And then he ended up being your priesthood leader and having this experience. And, and be, I love that these men were willing to learn from you. Um, I think there's beauty in all of us being willing to learn from anybody, um, even people that we don't culturally tend to lear- think we could learn from. I think we need to break those assumptions, what we can learn from younger people, from people of, if we're male, what I can learn from females, from people that have different levels of education. We can learn a lot from people if we take the time to listen. There's a lot of hurting people who have gone through a faith transition, and it, nobody has asked them their story, what happened, what it feels like, even if you don't want to know what caused you to lose your belief, even if you just ask, just tell me what it feels like. We're raised our whole lives to share. We start at three years old to go before a pulpit in primary and start sharing. And then all of a sudden you lose your faith. And you can't share. I mean, it is this double-edged sword because you just want to share, but you also don't want to hurt somebody else's testimony. You want to try and reconcile and talk about the things that you've learned, but you have nobody to talk about it with. And there is a lot of fear. I get there's a lot of fear. There is a major misconception about people like me. I'm not the only one with a good heart. I'm not the only one who can't say for sure. I know Jesus is the Son of God, but they're still living as if He is. They're still wow. following Him as if He is. The, the level, if I wouldn't have done this, if I wouldn't have gone down this path, I don't know that my heart would have been open to learning to, about the LGBT community. I mean, my, my love has expanded because of this journey. And, and that's one of the things I would get so frustrated with is I've had a shift in belief, but my heart hasn't shifted for the worse. It's shifted for the better. And I don't say Jesus's name very often. But I choose to live as if he were real 
as if he, I, I know he walked the earth. There's enough evidence that he walked the earth, but I choose to teach my children. I, I can teach them anything. And I'm living, I mean, my parents did everything right. I'm living proof that no matter how much a parent does to try and teach their children to stay in the gospel, they can end up atheist one day. All I care about is that my children love people unconditionally, and that's it. I don't care about anything else as long as they can love people, and that's it. You know, I, I apply the stories of Jesus all the time in my life. And do I have time to share my favorite favorite? Absolutely. Um, my favorite part of Jesus's life was when he appeared to Doubting Thomas. Here we have Doubting Thomas who walked with him, who saw the miracles, but he couldn't believe that Jesus was risen. He had to see to believe. Jesus comes to him and he says, Thomas, touch me, touch my wounds. Like the only person we know of in the Bible that was gifted the evidence to actually touch him was the doubter. And Christ didn't say, touch the perfect part of me. Christ said, touch my wounds. That's how he knew the Savior was real. Because he touched his wounds. And in my opinion, that's what Ed Hegeman allowed. He allowed, like, he, he, sorry. I'm in trouble formulating this. This is what I see in him, and this is what I see in you, is that the most sacred place we can be from human to human is when we're sharing in our wounds and not our perfections. And this is what you do, and this is what Ed does, and that's what he invited those bishops to do in his presidency to do. Wow. That is really powerful. I love. I've never thought of um, Christ asking Thomas to touch his wounds, the symbolism of that, and then what Ed, I'm going to call him. And you. And thank you. um, And those bishops did for you. Is there, culturally, we don't, culturally, we present our perfect selves, and we have this culture sometimes of perfectionism. We can't be the real you, but for you to be the real you, the wounded you that we all are, I think all of us are wounded. I think humanity is incredibly wounding. The older I get and the more I see it, it's just incredibly wounding. And COVID's been wounding. There's so many wounding things going on. Yes. Um, But for that visual imagery of President Hegman and those bishops to see your woundedness, and your vulnerability, which to me is an incredible sign of your strength, and your courage to be open to share your woundedness. And those wounds aren't your fault. Um, that so much of the woundedness that comes is really not our fault. We're just, most of us are trying to do our best. 
Um, but then to hold that woundedness and just hear it and see it, sit with it and not dismiss it and not try to explain it away or say you're overthinking it or you're being too sensitive or I don't see it that way. It sounds like they just sat they, with you. They did. And you know, I wish, do I have regrets from resigning? Yeah. You know, you look at um, Jewish people, right? A Jewish, Jewish person loses his faith in Judaism. He will still proudly claim Judaism as, as his heritage. But I feel like within the church, you lose belief, you're cut off. Um, I would love to see Mormonism say, you know what? You don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore? Come sit with us anyways. You don't, you can't say you know for sure that the Book of Mormon is a literal history. That's okay. Come sit with us. You don't know where you stand with God. I mean, with Jesus, that's okay. Come sit with us. They do that for investigators. They don't do that for people who've lost the faith. I, I can't get rebaptized because I can't say I know Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. I can't say I know Jesus is the Son of God. But I cut myself from my heritage. And just like the church teaches, there's good and bad in everything. There's good and bad in the church. Like the doctrine for the LGBT community can be very harmful. But for people who fit the mold, for eternal families, it's beautiful. And so there is Mormonism. My goodness. A lot of it comes from being raised in this church. But as of now, I will never be able to just reconnect to my, my heritage because I can't answer the questions to the truth claims. And so at this point, I'm like, why should I even go? I will always be an outsider. Mormonism is in my blood. I act Mormon. I still talk Mormon. I will probably talk Mormon the rest, like, until I die. And there are some things that I am very, very proud of Mormonism. You have a gift to sort of articulate the complexity of your situation. Um, you also give a lot of grace because there are people that are out of the church and resigned and sort of to, I don't want to label that group in one narrative either, but sort of want most people to follow their path. And it helps sometimes maybe to justify their decisions, see other follow them, and they want others to see the way they do. You have this grace about you that just gives space for people. It may be harder for you. It almost might be easier emotionally just to completely disconnect from the church. Um, but I think you recognize, and I think long-term and even maybe in short-term, it's better. I think what you're doing is is maybe harder at times because you stay connected and it can be difficult at times. And what you just articulated in my heart kind of jumps out for you because I recognize the complexity of your situation and your desire to reconnect. Um, I think I did a post recently about... Um, you know, we talk about this, you know, we invite people to stay in the boat, 
Um, that's an Elder Ballard talk from 2014, but I often look inward and think, what can I do to help people stay in the boat? And how can we make a bigger boat? And President Hegman is making a bigger boat. Your story is helping us see what can I do? So I look inward now and say, what can I do to make a bigger boat? I think some people sort of get pushed out of the boat that don't want to. Um, and you make this idea of um, creating space for people. And I think, yeah, in, for the temple, the boat gets a little narrower. There is a belief and a behavior hurdle. But I think to feel like you belong in your congregation, in your case, I don't even think you need to be a member. <laughs> um, you certainly felt like you belonged um, when you met with the eight bishops in the stick presidency. And so I think, and to me, no one sold out our doctrine to do that. It's not like someone, to me, we just actually honored the teachings of Christ and implement them in that situation to create a feeling of belonging or a bigger boat or your story's important. And um, we need you here to help create Zion. Your perspective, your life experience is going to help us help others and help us do better. So one of my invitations, listeners, is I hear Ginger's story is what can we do in our circle of influence to make a bigger boat? And one of the things someone suggests to me is, you know, there ought to be room for people in the boat that don't have a temple recommend and even don't have a desire to get one. There ought to be room for people that have a testimony in polygamy and those that don't, those that believe the priesthood ban was from God and those that don't. I think the boat just can be bigger. And the reason I want that is so more people connect with the healing doctrine that came through the restoration. To me, that's sort of why, yeah, I probably have a little bit of agenda there to keep people that want to be in the boat to stay in the boat so they can connect with the some of the restored doctrine that came through the prophet Joseph Smith, especially the healing power of the atonement. So, I'd love to, yeah, see how you feel about all that um, or a, anything else you want to say. Yeah, a couple things. Um, I needed to leave the boat. That's a real good. I needed to from my journey. I, I feel like there's this cultural attitude in the church that preaches free agency, free agency, free agency. But when you actually used it, you're shunned. And so there are are many of us, like it really is a faith journey. I remember once, I don't know where I heard it, where they were talking about the straight and narrow path. I don't believe anymore it's because only few people are going to be on it. I believe it's straight and narrow. I, and I, it can be straight and still be zigzag, right? Like who, like, and so for me, it's, it's straight and narrow because I'm the only one on it and nobody else can determine my journey, but me and the divine. That's my new word for him. I call him the divine. And I do have, because of my man issues, like sometimes I like to refer to him as a she. That's fine. <laughs> so there are a lot that, you know, I've, I've, I've met wonderful people who've left the church, who've gone down a similar path. And some people are meant to stay in. And some people are meant to go out swimming for a while. And if they don't come back in this life, all I ask is that, that as a church, we truly trust in the divine that it's just all individualized. And um, 
Oh, there was one more thing. I love that, Ginger. I love that. And I think we can just trust people to know their best path forward and and love them because they deserve to be loved, not because our love will bring them back to the boat. Yes. Or just because because they're children of heavenly parents, they deserve to be loved and we can trust them, we can honor them, and we can just leave any judging to our Savior. Yes. And so I love that for you, you felt leaving the boat was part of your journey. Yes. And it was part of the growth and part of your experience that you needed to do, perhaps because of the trauma and because of the things that were occurring in the boat for you. But why does it? But why does it also have to be? I didn't mean to cut you off. An all or nothing. I love President Hinckley. It's interesting. He is my favorite. The boat sort of is an all or nothing it's analogy. It's all or nothing. Maybe. And President Hinckley has said in the past, either this is the greatest work. Or it's not, it's all, it's either all true or none of it's true. I don't know if, I don't remember exactly. So when you're on the boat and you start losing little by little or all at once in two days, you feel like you have to jump. You have to jump ship. And why does it have to be all or nothing? I like that. And I think Dr. Brene Brown has helped me realize you either she talks about either for us or against us and how those sort of binary statements may not be the best way to approach everything. And Christ certainly seemed to create grace and understanding and inclusion. And I've really revisited the term cafeteria Mormon. That's a term that we usually associate in a negative way to people that aren't fully in the boat, so to speak, or fully committed. Um, I've learned, because I recognize we're all cafeteria Mormons to some extent, mm-hmm. me included. Mm-hmm. And to learn to accept grace, to give grace to everybody as they're doing their best as we're all cafeteria Mormons, making our way forward and not trying to to divide us within because of what we might see someone else doing that you know and so i i like what you're saying and i think it's just a better way forward to extend grace and understanding and just i do the boat sort of does have this edge to it i'm thinking of another analogy where maybe you haven't left the boat in some ways that the boat's big enough that even though you're out in the water you're still within the circle of our love or what the stick presidency did or what other people are doing for you and others and what you're doing back for people in the boat. You know, even though you're a resigned member, I, there's some visual in my mind and you're in the water, so to speak, that you're not, um, that we're still part of the same whatever and we're still part of the same human family and we're trying to help each other even though we're in slightly different places and we're not try to divide us further because of our differences, I think. So just some thoughts there as I'm sharing stuff out loud. Yeah, I love it. Um, Any (laughs) final things you'd like to share? We're kind of at the end. If I could request one thing um, for members who have loved ones that are going through this, Um, there is a grief process. There is a grief process. And while anger has to be a part of it, it has to be a part of grief. 
So when you see your loved ones angry and bitter, give them that space for a while. Let them know in that space that you still love them and that you still want them in your life. But once they're out of that anger, then, you're, then you'll be more ready to talk to them. Um, you don't have to ask questions in specifics. But so many of us that lose our faith, we just, we just want our family and friends to understand the pain and, and the trauma of it. And without coming across like we are meaning to offend you or talk bad about the church or talk bad about the leaders. I love that. Um, I read this statement, listeners, quite a bit. It's the wounded healer, um, but Ginger Price is the wounded healer. A minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led at the desert by someone who's never been there, and that's by Henry Norwin. And you are a wounded healer. You're incredibly wounded, and I mean that in a positive way. You have been incredibly wounded. You're just more open about it than some of us. I think we're all wounded, and you have the courage to talk about that um, in appropriate situations with trusted people, including what happened in your stake. But I think you've been a wounded healer for a long time because people know that they can trust you and you're a safe person for them to talk about the complexities of their life. And you still continue to kind of heal from the anger and pain and trauma. But I think if your older selves could talk right now, I think you'll have incredible experience to bring hope and healing to other people. Seems to be part of your life mission. Thank you. And um, I, it just gives me hope for the future. And um, I just trust you. I'm not your priesthood leader, but I'm a friend. And I just trust you as you continue to make a way forward that you'll know how best to do this. You seem pretty focused on wanting to help people, wanting to bring us together, wanting to find unity even in differences. Um, you have a lot of empathy and compassion for people on their individual roads. You're really a remarkable person. I think I called out our friend, Brother Nider, by his wrong name. I, I went back, way back at the beginning of the podcast. You know him as Elder James. Nider, but it's James. James. I may have called him a different name. So, James, if you're listening, I'm correcting myself and um i i just invite all of us to think what can we do better after hearing this story i think i think of if i'd heard this story 10 or 15 years ago i ended up you know in the last five years or eight years home teaching somebody had left the church and he would let me in his home but i never asked him why he left it was the elephant in the room and i realized he would have liked to tell me that story um, another dear friend of me told me about someone who hadn't attended their ward for over 25 years and he went out to lunch with them after developing a friendship. And he said, tell me why you don't come with tears in his eyes. He said, I've lived in this ward for over 20 years and no one's ever asked that question. And you know what it's like. And I think we can learn to ask those questions. It's part of ministering. It's part of, part of having the skills to address the elephant in the room, so to speak, and say, just tell me the story of why you left. 
and somehow communicate you're a safe person to do that. President Hegman did that in social media because he said kind things about people that had left the church. Yes. I sort of did that as a YSA bishop when I said kind things about gay people <laughs> on social media. A lot of my YSAs that weren't active well, were on my social media and said, okay, I can talk to this guy. I'm not gay, but I know he's a safe person to talk about the realities of my life. And so I think as we learn to say kind things about everybody, you don't have to be on social media to do that. That may not be your thing, but you may find other ways to just say kind things about everybody in your circle that your own kids know you're safe, your family members you're safe, you're ministering people. And then you can have these kind of healing conversations that you're having. Can I share one thing? I'd love that because <laughs> I love my guest to have the last thought. <laughs> one last thing. Well, it's, uh, it's about you. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> um, well, and it's about Ed. Um, a friend of mine just shared this little meme and it showed if you put your ear, the shape of your right ear and the shape of, have you seen this? No. The shape of your left ear together, it's a heart. And she just shared this two days ago and it basically said, listen, learn and love. I love that. That's all it takes to show people that you still love them is to just listen. So, uh, Ginger, thank you. We've been talking about doing this podcast for a while, but this is thank the right you. time to do it. And um, continue to share your voice. And, um, you know, we'll link to Ginger's Facebook post about this experience so you can connect with Ginger if you'd like to. And um, thank you, our listeners. This is Ginger Price and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>